Jamie Atten is a disaster psychologist at the faculty of Wheaton College. You mean, what is a disaster psychologist? This is a book he wrote in 2020. I have not read this book, but I read an article uh, in the Washington Post in 2016 in which Jamie explains and goes further in this book. At the age of 35, he was diagnosed with stage 4 colon cancer that had spread to his pelvis. Atten said in this article, for the first six months, whatever I asked for a prognosis, my, all my oncologists would say, I can't tell you that it's going to be okay, Jamie. It's too early to tell. If there's anyone you want to see or anything you want to do, now is the time. Cancer wasn't the first disaster I faced. My family and I moved to South Mississippi six days before Hurricane Katrina. But this disaster was different. There was no opportunity to evacuate as I did before Katrina made landfall. This time, the disaster was striking within. I was a walking disaster. Atain learned that the key to both traumatic situations involved what he calls spiritual surrender. This is what he said. Spiritual surrender helps us to understand what we have control over and what we don't. In the research study I led after Katrina, we found that people who showed higher levels of spiritual surrender tended to do better. This finding didn't make much sense to me at the time. It seemed like a passive faith response. Fast forward to my cancer disaster. I vividly remember taking the trash to the curb one winter morning while praying that God would heal me. The freezing air felt like tiny razor blades cutting across my hands and feet because of the nerve sensitivity caused by my chemotherapy. Wondering if God ever heard my prayers for healing, I kept praying as I walked back inside my home. Then all of a sudden, I dropped to my knees and prayed the most challenging prayer of my life. Instead of continuing to pray for God's healing, I asked that God would take care of my wife and children if I didn't make it. This was the hardest prayer I ever prayed. For the first time in my life, I truly experienced spiritual surrender. I finally understood that true spiritual surrender is far from being passive. It is a willful act of obedience. I don't know if you really get it at this time, what he's actually saying. It's that this, this spiritual surrender is a willful act of obedience. There was nothing wrong with his prayer to heal him. God, heal me. Heal me. This is a prayer that ought to be prayed. But what clicked for him in a moment that he didn't even necessarily control, in a moment he fell to his knees and then he prayed something. He prayed a prayer that's acknowledged that God was actually in control. In a sense, whatever happens, Lord, care for my wife and my children. Because he recognized in that moment, he might not be able to. Surrendering to God. Spiritual surrender is obedience. Spiritual obedience. And, and spiritual obedience, which we need to understand, is, is actually love. It's acknowledging the sovereignty and lordship of God. 
that he's in control. It's, it's discerning the difference between leading and following God in your life. This is what spiritual surrender is. Um, the connotation behind the word surrender for most of us, at least for me, is that it is passive. It's weak. That's not what men do, for sure. And yet the experience for him learning and walking in spiritual surrender for all of us is never passive. In fact, it's probably the hardest and most willful thing you could ever do. Let's turn to John 18 at the arrest of Jesus and learn about the power and the courage of surrender. John 18, 1 through 2. Let's hear it again. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the book Kidron, where there was a garden in which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. Right, so he had spoken these words. What is this referring to, right? This is, this is going all the way back. John is filled with a lot of monologues of Jesus, and so sometimes we, get, we lose track of where Jesus is saying them or how he said them, but so what he has just spoken, he has been in the upper room, really from uh, chapter 12 in John all the way here, and that he's, he's had the Last Supper, and then he went on to this uh, extensive monologue from 14 through 17, which he's talked about the promise and the gift of the Holy Spirit, about the true vine, staying connected to him and God, about loving one another, caring for one another, his prediction of death. He had this high priestly prayer, which we just went through. These are all things that he just spoke, and now, in the middle of the night, the night of Passover, they leave and head to go to the place where they normally gather. Now let's look at a map of Jerusalem. This is kind of going to be important to kind of point out some important things, right? So you see the Garden of Gethsemane up here, right? Uh, and then uh, a couple others is the Antonio Fortress or the Fortress of Antonio. That actually fortress I'm going to talk about in a little bit is actually was built in 15 or 20 BC by the Romans. This is really a front to the temple, but it's built to the edge of the temple. And this is where the Roman battalion and soldiers would stay, Right attention, and they, they would actually have access to get right inside the temple to calm the crowds or to control the crowds. And so this is where they were staying. This is going to be important in a second, and you can see all his journey later on. But then you see the Kidron Valley here. And the Kidron Valley, just a, a place of reference, it's not an active stream or brook. It is a, it's what we call a wadi, so it's dry most of the seasons. And when the rainy season, then it becomes a rushing river, and it floods, floods out. And so this would have been places where they cross over. And you think about the depth of it from the temple floor to the bottom of that valley, it's about 200 feet. Uh, so not impossible, but not, not a straight line to get through. So Jesus, and I think they're gathering around. John doesn't give us an account of the garden, of Jesus in the garden. So what we're hearing right now is after they would have been in the garden. So they would have been normally gathered, Jesus, around the garden. That's the normal place they would have gathered with his people. So I want you to think of the context here. It's the night of the Passover. Uh, Jewish law would have required that people that are the pilgrims for the Passover, that you stay within the city boundary. Uh, and so much like we had talk uh, this morning. It might not exactly be within the city walls, but you had to be in close proximity to the city. So technically, they would have been outside the city walls, or, but they would have been in the, 
close proximity within the city. They couldn't, he couldn't go back to Bethany where his cousins were and reside there. That they, so this is where they normally gather. They have had a practice of gathering right close outside the temple, Jesus' disciples, which is important because this is where, how Judas knows where they're at, they're at because Judas would have gathered them there. It's at night, middle of the night, full moon. The garden is between them and the temple and the kindred rally in this valley dry bed. And we get verse 3. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches, torches and weapons. You can remember back that Judas had already left from the upper room. In fact, Jesus told Judas early on in the upper room in this meal, leave. And in John 13, 27, then after he'd taken the morsel, Satan entered into him, Judas. Jesus said to him, what you are going to do, do quickly. And then Judas gets up and leaves. So he hasn't, Judas hasn't even heard Jesus' monologue in the upper room, but he has already gone out. He has taken the time to uh, betray Jesus for 30 shekels, gone to the Pharisees, and since gathered this party to let's go get him. Let's find him. And what's very fascinating is who are the people that are, are actually going to arrest Jesus? What does it say here? It says, I mean, what's your picture? My picture is a handful of people that are going out to arrest Jesus. But here's what it says. It is a band of soldiers. These are Roman soldiers. It's a band of Roman soldiers. And the particular word, it's a detachment. A detachment of Roman soldiers by ideally is a thousand soldiers. Practically usually around 600. Uh, All of them would have been stationed. I remember that Tower of Antonio. That's where they've been stationed. They would have been particularly on high alert because there's an influx of people going towards Jerusalem and the temple because it is Passover, and there are all a bunch of people that are outside in that area of the garden, other encampments of people, like Jesus and his disciples, that are preparing because this is what they're required for them. So the soldiers would have been on high alert and been ready to, to quell the crowds. And so we are told that Judas gets a band of soldiers. So practically 600. It could be as low as 200. The point is, it is a lot of people to go after one man in the middle of this night. And and more than that, it's not just the Roman soldiers, right? We're going to assume that it's a higher number of soldiers because of the night and the Passover as was, and the nervousness of the Romans that would have been. Uh, And Judas knew where to go. It was pretty close to where the tower was, so they, it wouldn't have, they wouldn't have it dispersed out. Judas knew exactly where Jesus would have been because Judas would have hung out with Jesus there. Hundreds of Roman soldiers go to arrest Jesus. Roman soldiers with swords, torches, going out after him. Not just that. There's also, it says, some officers, which would have been the temple police. Jewish temple police, you can think of like uh, the capital police. They're, they're assigned to protect and guard the temple. They go too. They're kind of the special uh, guard. On, and the Pharisees, uh, some of the chief priests, come out too with Judas to find Jesus. I want you to picture this. It's, an, it's at night, full moon, but still hard to see. Hundreds Hundreds of men, maybe up to 600, out with light and weapons 
to find one man. I mean, in my mind, I have this actual picture of uh, monster movies, like a witch hunt going after Frankenstein, right, with the torches, like, we're going to get him, like the whole town is going after him. Like, this seems a little overkill, doesn't it? Here's the symbolic point of all this. We have both Jewish officials and Roman officials, Gentile officials, going to arrest Jesus in force. It's a symbol in the sense that the whole world, Jews and Gentiles, are opposed to Jesus. This massive force is accusing the Son of God. And And then, of course, what happens is everyone betrays him. He is alone. Verses 4 through 5. Then Jesus, in the midst, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, says to this huge crowd coming out in force, he doesn't wait to them, they come and say something to him. He goes and approaches them. Whom do you seek? And they answered, well, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. Here's the point. This passage is really trying to hammer home the obedience of Jesus to the Father's plan. Jesus knew everything that was going to happen before him. And he doesn't sit back passively and say, well, I'm just going to let this happen. He actually engages this to happen. He sends out Judas to make sure that it happens. And as the soldiers in the arresting party are coming forward, he's the one that initiates the conversation. Who are you looking for? Oh, yeah, I am him. You know, there's no centrifuge. There's no, like, I don't know. Well, I don't where is Jesus? That'd be a good point, right? And so it's not like a, the movie Spartacus where everyone says, I'm Jesus, I'm Jesus. Like, no, he says, I, I'm the one. You got me. Now, you know, the other gospels, it talks about how Jesus, uh, Judas comes up and uh, betrays him with a kiss. And so this might be the place where he betrays him with his kiss or not. But here's the thing. Jesus, knowing what happened, would obey. He's modeling surrender, He's modeling, I am obeying the will of the Father. A very, not a very passive act, a very active, strong act. He is surrendering to the circumstances that the Father has given to him, and absurd as they are. This army, this, this moment in which people are going to arrest, humiliate me, harm me, kill me, I am going to surrender myself. In this narrative in John, Jesus never loses control. This is the absolutely fascinating thing about his surrender, is that he never loses control. He always pushes the action. The sense is not that Jesus is being hunted down, but Jesus is allowing himself to be found. Allowing himself to surrender to the Father's will. You see, Jesus is claiming clearly that he is the sovereign God, that he is in control in all these moments. In John 10, 18, he's told us before, no one takes it from me, his life, but I lay it down on my own accord. Not even this army that comes before me. They're not going to take it. I'm going to give it. I have the authority to lay it down. I have the authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. And he asks 
the question, whom do you seek? Now, this doesn't make sense, this question, whom do you seek, if it's a small crowd that's coming after Jesus. Because if it's a small crowd coming after Jesus, Judas is there. He doesn't have to ask that question. Judas says, that's the guy. But this actually makes sense that it's actually quite a large crowd, and Judas doesn't have access to everyone. He's not standing in earshot of everyone and said, that's Jesus. Jesus actually has to initiate the conversation in the large crowd. Whom do you seek? Yeah, I'm Jesus. And then presumably Judas comes up and verifies that by giving him a kiss. And of course, his response is not, I am Jesus, it's I am he. This is that phrase in John, uses over and over again, which is that redundant, uh, weird phrase that's unnecessary, that I am, I am. In John, where we have these seven plus I am statements, and it says, I am, I am, which you wouldn't have to say that. It's, it's the sense he's echoing the divine name of God. I am God. I am the one that saved you out of Egypt. I am the one who revealed himself to Moses in Exodus 3.14. When, when Moses asked God, who are you? Who am I to tell every, that you are? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said this to his people, I am has sent me to you. Jesus says this to them. This is how he responds. In verse 6, and when Jesus said, I am he, Let's look what happens next. They drew back and fell to the ground. This, this massive hundreds of men, maybe up to 600, as he says, I am he. What do they do? They stumble back and they fall to the ground. Well, I, this is an incredible image. Everyone falls backwards and to the ground at Jesus' divine utterance of who he is. Now, here's what I would say. John doesn't tell us or explain much why everyone falls to the ground. But previously, we know that the Pharisees, when they have encountered uh, Jesus, that they've been in awe of his teaching, that it has taken them back before. That they, it's, whoa, what is, what is he teaching? And sometimes it has so emotionally moved them with his proclamations about who he is that they've wanted to stone him, that it's moved them not to fall back and bow down, but to pick up a stone, like, let's kill this guy. Like, what Jesus says to people has sometimes emotional and strong results, responses, just as this moment does. So why, perhaps, do they fall back and they fall down to the ground? Perhaps it's the, the direct and the boldness of his Jesus' response that he approaches them and he does not hide who he is. But he clearly says, I am he, confronting the army before they can confront him. Some would say maybe they, they would have drawn back because they understood. Many would have understood the overtones of God's self-declosure, of, of what he actually said, that he uses this divine name, this unnecessary utterance. I would say it's not a moment that they all bow down, that they all are worshiping. They're recognizing that what he was, who he's claiming to be, that he's claiming to be God. This is why they actually want to kill him, but it's because he claims to be one with God. 
But this is not a moment like, oh man, we're going to worship you and fall down. This is more of, I am so shocked that I can't even stand because of what he's saying. There, there is grief and trembling that how he's so bold in pronouncing this moment. I, I don't know if you've, many of you have seen the movie Gladiator. I think this is the second time I've referenced it in a couple months. So maybe you should see it. But there's this, so in the movie Gladiator, the, the, the main character by Russell Crowe is, uh, he's, he's taken away, he's become, he's a, used to be a Roman soldier and then he, now he's become a slave that is now in the Colosseum battling, battling these things. And so uh, the emperor which, uh, who betrayed the emperor, the current emperor who betrayed the emperor and betrayed uh, the Crowe character uh, doesn't know who he is because he's, he's, wearing, he's been wearing this kind of mask in this battlefield, and so he's become the star of the of this this ring, right? And so the emperor brings his nephew and brings him down, and they're all excited. They want to meet him because of this famous thing, conqueror. And so he says, you know, take off your mask. And the crow character takes off his mask, and of course he says this famous line: "My name is Maximus Decimus Meridius, commander of the armies of the north, general of the Felix regions, and the royal servant of the true emperor." Marcus Aurelius, father to a murdered son, husband to a murdered wife, and I have my, will have my vengeance in this life or the next. And in the scene, everyone falls, like, it's like shock, like, <gasps> fall, falling back, because the boldness in which he's saying this, because he's saying it within feet of the guy who killed his, his wife, his children, betrayed him and put him in this moment. And in a sense, he says, I'm going to have my vengeance against you. And this is the first time he's recognized who he is. That's a little bit of what the scene is. It's not, now we're going to worship you. It's like, what did he just say? Who is he claiming to be? And everyone is aghast by this moment. And yet in this, there's this kind of really foreshadowing in this moment, in the response of falling down, bending on their knee, of example of what God will actually do to all people, that every knee will bow and every tongue confess. They, they are actually unintendedly responding in the way they ought to respond, even though they don't have the heart to respond in that manner. It's a very incredible moment in this. In verse 7 through 9, so he asked them again, Jesus, they've, they've all fallen aback, and then he's like, okay, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. He says the same thing over again. So if you seek me, let these men go, his disciples. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Of those whom you gave me, I have not lost one. Because of their recoil, the army has lost control of this moment. Jesus takes control again and asks them again, what are you supposed to be doing? Who are you supposed to be arresting? Oh, Jesus. Oh, okay, snap back in place. Yeah, I'm he. Let's go. But like, you can't take these people. And does it, it doesn't explain why they didn't obey him. They have enough people that they could arrest them all. They're like, sure, yeah, we'll leave those people. And part of it, it fulfills the prophecy that none will go ahead. But also the point is that even his disciples, his disciples are going to turn against him as well. They are going to betray. The whole world betrays Jesus. Here's the point that I think this passage is really trying to get to us. Is Jesus 
willfully surrenders. This is not a passive moment. He's not caught off guard. He's not like, they got me. He goes and seeks this out. Willfully surrender to the Father's plan. This is not passive or weak. It's quite the opposite in this passage. It is great strength that Jesus shows this moment. It's great courage that he shows in this moment. It is, it is great faith and trust in the Father's plan for his life. Jesus actively surrenders to the Father's will by surrendering his life to an army before him and to moments of agony and pain to death on a cross. And then we get a different response. Verse 10. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. All right, let's, I'm just think about what well, we've just been told how Jesus responds to this crowd. Takes a very active moment, confronts them, gets them to send to arrest him, and then Peter acts in direct contrast to Jesus. There's a, there's a proverb or a saying, not a, not a biblical proverb, is that you defend God like you defend a lion. You get out of the way. Like Jesus is like, man, thanks Peter for standing up for me. I really needed your defense here. No, no, God doesn't need us to defend him. God doesn't need us like, you know what, I could really use it to step in here and help me out. He doesn't need you to serve him. He wants you to. He definitely doesn't need you to defend him. He's got this moment, and he's got every moment in his plan. Peter is acting like God needs his action, or that Jesus needs his defense, which just really highlights in this moment that Peter has no idea who Jesus is nor has he any faith or trust in what Peter, uh, Jesus has said. Peter trusts himself. But I also want you to think about Peter's decision here. How many people are out there? Hundreds of soldiers, not just ordinary men, Roman, legions of Roman men, maybe up to 600, 200 minimum. And he pulls out, not a full Roman sword, but a, a, a Jewish dagger uh, that's hidden in his cloak. So it's small. It's, and it's not meant to slice. It's actually meant to stab. Peter intends to kill these people. This is his intent with this. He is tending to kill, like, hey, 12 versus 600, I, we got this. Let's go. We can take him, Jesus. It seems brave, doesn't it? It seems stupid in many ways. But the brave thing actually in that moment would have been to follow the Father's plan. Would have been to follow the will of Jesus. Would have been to follow the one who he said he was a disciple of. That would have been the brave thing. You see, Jesus is the brave one in this moment, not Peter. Other gospel tells us that Jesus uh, takes the time to heal the soldier's ear. But the emphasis isn't in that necessarily total rebellion, but the emphasis is that Jesus is obedient. 
and surrendering. We get get this foil of Peter being disobedient, not surrendering, trying to stand up. And you get one of Jesus that he is obedient, in control, and surrendering. Peter is out of control, not surrendering, holding on to his own will. Verses 11 through 12, Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. The other gospels highlight Jesus' encounter with Peter, and he says, he adds a little phrase, all you perish will all will perish by the sword who die by the sword. But here Jesus pushes it back to his obedience to his to his father. Put your sword into your seat, because what I have to do, I have to take the cup in which my father has given me. And that that symbol of the the cup that the father gives him is that he has to, this is Isaiah 51 and Jeremiah, that this cup is the the cup of wrath filled by the father. This is what that symbolism, that, that I have to drink the wrath of the father. This is his plan. This is his will. This is what I have to do. It's, it is emphasizing Jesus back to, I am willfully surrendered to the Father's will. We, in the other Gospels, we get this moment in a sense when Jesus is praying in the garden and he's struggling with the Father's will. It's like, I don't really like this plan. This doesn't seem like a great thing for me, but I will obey it, Lord. I will obey it, Father. This is your plan. Your will be done. This is the emphasis we're getting into John. And John, Jesus will accept and willingly go into the circumstances and into the situation that the Father has given him. Arrest, humiliation, brutal beating, abandonment, death. What did we say surrendering was? Surrendering, spiritual surrendering is an act of obedience. It's an act of faith. It's a fact of, of trusting in the Father's plan. I may not totally fully understand it, but I trust that this is a good plan. Surrendering is not weak. It requires bravery. It requires bravery knowing what's going to happen to you to step into that. Surrendering is not passive. It, it's not whatever happens, happens mentality. It says, well, well, I'll just let it be. No, no, this is orienting, surrendering, is orienting your will to God's will. Orienting your will to God's will. And this may sound, surrendering, like a works-based faith. This may sound like, okay, I'm asking, Jesus is asking you to surrender your will to his will, like so that you need to do something to get your will aligned with his will. And yes, but no. There's something more that happens for us to be able to surrender of course, he has to give us the Holy Spirit, which he said earlier, which he'll give. But I just, Peter's response is quite opposite of Jesus. It's quite opposite of surrendering. Peter acts on his own will and his own desire. In this moment, he says, no, no, I've got a plan. I don't think he's really thought through his plan, but he's got a plan. And he initiates that plan. St. Augustine, in his um, book about his autobiography really of confession says this sin comes when we take a perfectly natural desire 
or longing or ambition and try desperately to fulfill it without God. Not only is it sin, it is a perverse distortion of the image of the Creator in us. All these good things and all our security are rightly found only and completely in Him. Peter surrenders himself to his own desires and he picks up his sword. Peter surrenders and submits to sin. We've talked about sin as this moral order in rebellion against God, in rebellion against his will. Peter doesn't even consider in this moment, what is the will of the Father? What is the will of Jesus? He just acts. Our our hearts, the, the center of Scripture, we'll call it the center of our will, our intellect, our desires, Scripture says, are slave to sin. Romans 6.20, for when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness, meaning you didn't have to be righteous because you were slave to sin. You couldn't be. You couldn't actively choose righteousness. You are a slave to sin. This is, this is exhibit A in Peter. He is a slave to sinful desires. He thinks it's righteous. He thinks this is the good moment. The whole point of Jesus' self-surrender is so that he can accomplish our salvation. This is the plan of the Father, that the Son accomplishes the salvation, which would set us free from sin, which would set us free from death, which would set us free from the evil one, that God could then impute his righteousness, grant us his Holy Spirit, and begin to change us from the inside out. Romans 6.22 says this, but now, but now, since Jesus has accomplished our salvation, that he's given you his Holy Spirit, but now that you've been set free from sin, this moral order and rebellion, you have become slaves of God. The fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end eternal life. You and I have been given the Holy Spirit, which allows us by his power to change our desires. It allows us to will and choose God. This is a really important concept. We've been talking about holiness the last couple weeks. You are not slaves to sin anymore. You can't say, well, we're all just sinners. Humans are sinners. You are not anymore. Yes, you do still sin. But don't fall into, well, I, I'm a sinner. No, that is not an acceptable excuse. God has given you your Holy Spirit so you can now choose before you couldn't. You can now choose his will. You have the power inside you, not by your own ability, but by the one who resides in you to choose that will. You have the same spirit that resided in Jesus that could say, I am he, arrest me. You have that same spirit now to choose and surrender. This is not your own doing. This is the ability and will of God that he's given you. We have the ability to surrender to God and his will right now. God's acting in and for us right now. Beforehand, we did not have this ability. Before God saved us, before the Holy Spirit has come into your life, you did not have the ability to surrender to God's will. You had the ability to obey your will and your will alone. 
You, you see, I, the scripture tells us you become, a, it's interesting, a slave from sin to a slave to God. And like, well, that's just still slavery, isn't it? But the problem is we mixed up what freedom is. You see, we think freedom of the, of the will is not, is, we think it's unconstrained self-actualization. Like, I get to be and do whatever I want. The problem is you think that, but you're actually a slave to sin. And so you actually only get to do that. There is no freedom. There is no movement. I mean, we're n- it's, not like, it's not like there's only one choice in sin. There's a multitude of choices that we individually differently make. Sure, there's freedom in that, but you are bound by sin and bound by it. But you see, freedom is being set free from the power of sin. And, and when we're set free from the power of sin, we're not given an external law that guides us. That we're like, okay, I have to obey that. There is, like the law is still there. It's still, it's God's character revealed to us. But here's what God says, is I'm going to write that law into your hearts, into your desires, into your very will. And so we don't say, I have to obey this outside law. It's like the law is written in me and I choose and everything I do is obedience to that. There will be one day where we walk with God that we don't think about, am I obeying the law? Am I obeying God? It's just by the very nature of who we are. That is freedom. Scripture talks about another way is that all those actions are love, which no law can be written against because that's the nature and definition of the law. That's freedom. Freedom is inseparable from the character and the will of God. Jesus demonstrates and models this freedom in this moment by surrendering his will to the will of the Father. That surrender is strong, it's courageous, and it demonstrates faith. I trust in the Father's plans in this extraordinary circumstance, in this really difficult and hard path that he set before me. I trust in this plan. I've been reading Bono's new memoir called Surrender. If you don't know who Bono is, shame on you all I can say to that. And so this is what he, it's interesting he calls it, this is what he says about the title of this book. So surrender is a word I haven't yet fully grasped or fathomed. If I'm honest, I was born with my fist up, metaphorically and sometimes physically, and putting them down is hard for me. So it's this kind of ironic title that he's learning, that his whole life has been God teaching him to surrender his will to him, and yet he has fought God all the way in his life. This is the struggle that I think Bono has, I think Peter has, I think you and I have. We are born with sin, and so metaphorically, we are born with our fist up, ready to fight everyone's will, including God's, except our own. Like, this is it. And we think that's freedom. We argue and re- resist and fight God's will and plan because of our sin nature. Our willful ignorance blinds us to God's goodness and his love for us. Jesus 
consistently demonstrates, and particularly in this moment, that he's in control, that he is the sovereign Lord, and that he's going to demonstrate what surrender is. Yet Peter, in this moment, still wants to take control, despite all the clues that Jesus is giving him in this moment. And this is the part of the problem of our sin, is that it's not God-oriented. Sin distorts our perspective of events. It distorts our, our perspective of moments and circumstances in our lives. We're viewing moments from the wrong angle and with the wrong eyes, where Jesus sees all this moment very clearly of what needs to happen. Peter has no clue. He just says, they're trying to harm Jesus. Peter has a distorted view, not Jesus. How many times in your life has God made it clear that he is in Lord, that he is in control of all things, and you still fight for control in your life? A lot, doesn't it? Daily, doesn't it? If we go back to the story of Jamie Atten, this disaster psychologist, he said spiritual surrender helps us understand what we have control over and what we don't control. True spiritual surrender, he says, is far from passive. It is a willful act of obedience. When we come to the place of surrender it begins to put the world in proper perspective. Who is Lord and who is in control? God's interest in your salvation is not changing your circumstance, but changing your perspective by changing your character. I mean, it is story after story in Scripture that God takes us sinful people, his people, and puts them in really hard circumstances for a moment. Not because he wants to punish his people, but actually because he wants to draw them near to him, change their heart towards him. And in fact, it's the circumstances that God leads us into. It's the storms, the cancers, the illnesses, the whatevers in your life that God has put there, that may seem like a hard word, that a God allows you to experience to form your character of surrender. God has a plan. He has a plan to build that His character in you. He has a plan to build faith and trust in Him we fight like Peter. We demand immediate action and change from God. And listen, there's nothing wrong with having a conversation about God, about changing your circumstance. God invites us to have that conversation. I think God invites us to have that conversation because it begins to teach us something the more and more we have that conversation. I mean, the Psalms are filled with this tension of the psalmist, David, and whoever else coming before God and saying, change this difficult circumstance. This is hard. I'm in pain. I'm in misery. I'm alone. Fix this injustice. Fix this pain. 
And there's a constant response in those psalms that pulls us back that God says, wait. Wait. Wait on the one who's in control. Wait on the one who knows your pain. Wait on the one who is with you in this moment, who has not abandoned you. Wait who know, the one who knows the plan, that knows the destination. Wait on the one who loves you more than you can ever understand. You can, you can imagine this moment that Peter's standing close to Jesus. Jesus has said these things and, and Peter pulls out a sword. You can imagine, like, Jesus is like, Peter, wait. Wait, Peter, put down that sword. What are you doing? We're not changing this moment. This is the moment that needs to happen. It's the moment that needs to happen for Peter. Peter needs to turn his back on his Lord so that he can come back and lead God's people. What moment does God have you in right now? How does he want you to surrender to him? How does he want you to trust him in this moment? Do you believe that he actually is sovereign? That he actually is in control? That he actually is with you in this moment? Let us be strong and courageous with our life, knowing that God is leading us. That we're not just wandering in this, in this world by ourselves, but he has a plan and that this God has us in his hands. Let us actively surrender to God. Seek and obey his will. I mean, let us put our fists down with God. Stop fighting and surrender to him. I think we need to think about in the circumstances, this is hard for me, is not what am I supposed to do next, but who am I supposed to be in this moment? Who God, what does, who does he want me to be? Who is he forming me to be in this moment? We've been talking, last week I talked about we need to be uh, praying more together. Man, it is okay to have prayers of God to change your circumstance. But perhaps we should come together and pray for each other to surrender. To be filled in asking God for each other to change our character. to align our will with his will, to see his plan for us, to trust in these moments. Will you join me? Will you call me an account to put my fist down with God, to surrender more and more each day? Let us pray. Lord, I, we come before you, and then I, I, when I think of your call and your plan in your life, I think this is too much. It's too much to endure at times. Remind us that you are present, that you are of God that knows these circumstances, that knows this path. And knows what it means to surrender your will. 
to follow the Father's plan. Or metaphorically, let the Lord, Lord, our fighting spirit, that we, we thought fighting against you. And we, we spend more time with you and begin to learn more and more what your, your plan is, no matter what the circumstance is, a changed heart and a changed character be, to be resurrected out of this sin life and to live in the freedom forever with you. It's so easy to get caught up in the circumstances or with a plan or uh, see a way to fix things, Lord. Help us to be a people that are present. Help us be a people that are willing to wait and yet still willing to cry out, how long, Lord, how long? Teach us to love today. Teach us to obey by teaching us surrendering. We pray this in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen.